So we're beginning a new series. Uh, it's called Teach Us to Pray. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be covering, um, I think, one of those practical aspects of, of discipleship life, which is, uh, for many, I think, for many of us, it can be something which we find quite difficult, can't it? For others, it is a source of incredible help and encouragement. Uh, and so that aspect of prayer uh, within this gathering this afternoon can mean so much to some and can be a source of real angst for others. Uh, and so I guess over these next few weeks, what we're going to be able to do is really just pause and spend some time and think about the issues of prayer. What can our, how can we uh, nurture our prayer life? What, what is the model of prayer in the Bible? And the, the section inevitably, of the Bible that we're going to be using is the prayer that is often referred to uh, as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, not surprising that it is the Lord's Prayer because it's the prayer that the Lord taught His disciples. Uh, we won't be going through necessarily and just looking at that specifically. Rather, what we're going to be doing is using it, in a sense, as a springboard. We're going to be looking at different sections and then seeing how that interacts with other parts of the Bible and how we can learn today and what the implications are for us today. So we're going to begin right at the beginning of that uh, chapter 11 of Luke, uh, and we're going to cover just the first section, the first uh, two phrases really. Uh, we see this situation, the disciples uh, are observing Jesus praying and uh, he, they ask for to, to be taught to pray, teach us to pray, which is why we've cause, uh, called the series that. Uh, and then it carries on with Jesus, uh, giving them a model, if you like, of prayer. However, we're going to begin just with that first section. Imagine if you would, for a moment, just pause and try to relate to this perspective. We haven't got all of our electronic gadgets. We haven't got the developments of 21st century thinking. We haven't got the speed of communication. Uh, yet for a moment, for a short period of time, perhaps if we could inhabit that place, we have the incredible blessing of walking alongside Jesus for three years as he's teaching and uh, his work is continuing, he's performing miraculous works, we see him die, we see him live. Imagine what it must have been like during those three years. Uh, just for a moment, if we could pause and imagine what it would be like, and then to be uh, shocked by the perspective of this first few words. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. I think that first, those, there are two, one, there's one word used twice there, disciples, which is a fascinating foundation really for us to begin our, our thoughts on the issue of prayer. The very fact that if we had inhabited that place for a period of time, we would have been committing ourselves to following Jesus, to pursuing step by step, day by day, watching his life, observing his actions, listening to his teaching, and step by step shaping ourselves in accordance with him, we would be described as disciples. 
we would, that there are two groups of disciples mentioned in this text, aren't there? There are disciples of Jesus and there are disciples of John. Two groups of people. John the Baptist uh, was the cousin of Jesus uh, and John had come before Jesus. He was a little bit older uh, by a matter of months. He had taught in a remarkable, incredible way people. He had impacted people in an amazing way, but he had one purpose in all of his ministry, which ultimately was to point to Jesus. If you imagine uh, your Bible, if you, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you've got a Bible back at home, you've got two sections to the Bible, haven't you? You've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament. John, in a real sense, he, he's almost that, that pivotal moment. What's gone on in all of, the New, all of the Old Testament? What is the purpose of the Old Testament to its greatest sense? Right the way through, from the very beginning, right the way through the whole of the Old Testament, it has one trajectory. It is continually preparing, pointing, directing people to this moment when Jesus is present in the world. All of that Old Testament narrative, all of the teachings, all of the law, all of the poetry, all of those different perspectives, they have that one purpose. They're pointing to Jesus. And all of them are pointing to Jesus without seeing Him. They're all expecting. Hebrews describes it like this. Uh, they were looking through a glass dimly. Uh, in other words, it's clouded in some sense. There isn't the clarity of direct, absolute vision. And yet John, as a prophet, just like the prophets in one sense of the Old Testament, is remarkably different because he has this privilege. He says at one point in his ministry, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Look, there's the Lamb of God, and He's taking away the sin of the world. Unlike every other prophet, John is the moment where the pointing is physically directing the attention of His disciples towards Jesus. And then from that moment on, there's this process where the disciples of John, who had been committed to John's teaching, who John was teaching before Jesus was teaching, they were, go, they were then having to go through a process of reorientating themselves so that they were then following Jesus rather than following John. So that they understand that, understood that the purpose of John's teaching was not so that they would be followers and disciples of John, rather that they would become disciples of Jesus, because John was only a pointer towards Jesus, like every other one. Now, in a sense, that is the same for all of us as, a, as an invitation or as a life pattern today. We are, by, by, by the fact that we have the pointers of the Bible, we are making that transition in our lives to be disciples of Jesus. That's what being a Christian is. 
It's being a disciple of Jesus. I think in the 21st century, the idea of discipleship has massive problems, doesn't it? The idea of being a, a committed follower of something has all sorts of connotations, issues which are negative. You're kind of fanatical if you're pursuing something. That's generally the, the, the subplot of much of the writing. You know, that's how it emerges. And it's not just the Christian faith which falls foul of that. I, I watched a really fascinating documentary a few weeks ago. It's brilliant. It's called Going Clear, Scientology in the Prison of Belief. I think it was an award-winning documentary, excellent documentary, looking at the issues of Scientology, seeing the development of Scientology. If you're not sure what Scientology is about, um, the brief snapshot is it was really developed in 50s, 60s, a guy called L. Ron Hubbard, uh, who was initially a, a science fiction writer, built this whole idea into a religion, a religion. Uh, and for many, the idea that one would commit themselves and devote themselves to something which is all-out pursuit, it's a massive issue for us, isn't it? Why should we pursue Jesus? Why should we become disciples of Jesus? Because after all, being a disciple is straight away, it's becoming narrow-minded, it's becoming fanatical, it's becoming obsessed with something which is out of touch with the real world. That is the challenge that we face. I understand that. I recognize that. And when we begin a subject like prayer, which is an, an integral part of our discipleship life, we have to face that question, don't we? Why should I be a disciple of Jesus? Especially when this issue of prayer begins with the idea of the disciples of Jesus asking Jesus that question. I think one of the things that I would encourage us to just pause for a moment and recognize is that we are all, in one way or another, disciples of something. We're all disciples of something. We are all pursuers of something. Now, of course, for all of us, those pursuits are different. But we're caught up in a culture which would have us believe, a world which would have us believe, all of these other pursuits are normal, but if we pursue something which is somehow different to the rest of the world or everybody around us, somehow that's, that's weird because this isn't in any sense being a disciple of anything. Let's pause a minute. Say, are we, are we disciples of something? I want you to remember, if you can, that first moment 
when you chose your password for Facebook. And you started the process of learning how to inhabit that world. And you made the first tentative steps of what kind of status should I first present to the world? Now, I guess, yeah, absolutely. For lots of us, that's just, it's just a part of life. But for some people, it's way more than that. I, I would say we have, and you probably might look in the mirror and say, yeah, that's me. Or you might say, I know someone like that. We have disciples of Facebook. We have disciples of Facebook. Well, life is absolutely pursuing something. We have disciples of our careers. After all, don't we very often pursue something with absolute dogged determination? What is it to be a disciple? It means that I will give myself to this wholeheartedly. I found it fascinating looking at the level of pursuit of um, two, uh, and, and actually pursuit in two senses, the pursuit uh, that individuals would make towards Scientology and the pursuit of the Scientology hierarchy towards celebrity Scientologists, the way that they pursued big names so that they would attract more and more people was quite amazing. John Travolta and uh, Tom Cruise are the two most well-known. The way that they have been courted and, and showered with honor and, and all sorts of uh, special privileges in a, in a recognition that if we get somebody who's big and high in profile, that's going to get a whole other committed group of people who will pursue that. Absolutely. Because in some sense, there is a belief that if I pursue that, I will become like that. Somehow there's a connection in our minds subconsciously. We pursue all sorts of things, wholeheartedly, determinedly, doggedly, so that it becomes our identity, so that it becomes our purpose, our indwelling. It becomes the very def definition of who I am. That's what discipleship is. So, let's just pause for a minute. Uh, and in the, the process of considering the idea of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, let's just recognize that the, the, the idea of being an absolute pursuer is written into our very nature. The issue is, and the question is this, what do we pursue? Who do we pursue? Why one and not the other? That's the key question, isn't it? How can we, as if we are believers in Jesus this afternoon, how can we be re-encouraged uh, re or encouraged again? Re-encouraged. Can you be re-encouraged? No. Let's be encouraged again that we are pursuing the truth. If we are not this afternoon believers and followers of Jesus, let us be thinking and considering, is this something which I need to know is, needs to be the pursuit of my life? All of those issues, all of those questions we need to work out. Let's have a look then 
at what we see working out in this little section. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. Isn't that interesting? I think the first thing that we see is that it is a disciple who is our model of discipleship. It is a disciple who is our model of discipleship. Just pause for a minute and stop and think. Isn't that remarkable? Who would you think, if we follow the narrative of the Bible, if we follow the idea that the Bible is telling us the story, the It's creating in our minds an understanding that the whole narrative of the Bible is the idea that God comes into the world inhabited in Jesus in human form, in absolute humanity, in in absolute divinity. We have the person of Jesus. And then we see that Jesus prays. Isn't that a remarkable thought? God present in the world prays. Why does Jesus need to pray? Surely He knows all things. Surely He he sees all things. Surely the very definition of His divinity means that He doesn't need to pray. And yet what we see repeatedly, particularly in the book of Luke, what we see repeatedly is we see a model that the presence of God in the world, the divinity in human form, Jesus Himself, He lives a life of prayer. Isn't that a great thought? I think straight away that opens up for us a perspective on prayer which perhaps is unique in many of our thinking as we first begin to delve into the issues of what it means to pray. That, That it's not a a religious discipline which we have to observe because we claim to be a believer in Jesus. It's something which Jesus Himself loved to do because it is first and foremost, it is about relationship. Who was Jesus praying to? His Father in heaven. Just stop for a moment. Just think about that. Jesus present in the world is in relational connection with His Father in heaven. What do we know about Jesus? How do we understand the presence of Jesus? Right the way through the New Testament, it makes very clear that Jesus left heaven to be present in the world. It's one of the key differentiators of the Christian faith against the likes of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus left heaven to be present in the world. He came into the world. What was Jesus doing in heaven before He came into the world? He was being worshipped. Thank you, Dave. And He was enjoying a relationship with His Father. A perfect, beautiful, amazing, glorious relationship. 
which was being observed by all of those heavenly beings which were looking on and saying, that is amazing. Look at that. And then he leaves that. And he comes into this world. And yet in this world, he maintains, he exercises, he commits himself that that relationship is not going to be lost. And so, my relationship with my Father is expressed in the present world through my life of prayer with my Father. That's what Jesus does. And then the disciples, one of the disciples says to him, won't you teach us to pray? Will you teach us that. Teach us what you're doing. Teach us what you are doing. One of the things that marks out the idea of Jesus as as a disciple who is the model of our discipleship, one of the things that marks out the difference of relationship compared to religious observance is the idea that Jesus is modeling, going ahead of, showing what we become. One of the things that just struck me as I was watching that documentary a few days ago, which shouted out the difference between true faith in the living God and religious observance was this, that all of those necessary steps that, in this particular case, Scientology spread out in front of the disciple of Scientology was a necessary series of steps for us to go through so that we could be good enough to be a Scientologist. You know, keep do this, do this, do this, do this, and then you're a real Scientologist. Then you reach the state, the psychological state described as clear. And then then you're up there. Then you've made it. And the Christian faith says it is absolutely not about you observing the things that make you good enough to be. It's about you invited into relationship with the living God in a modeled sense by Jesus himself who enjoyed that relationship with his father here in this world. He's our model. He's also our instructor. He's our instructor. I wonder what the disciples thought when they saw Jesus. I think one of the thi- as, as he was praying, I think one of the things that seems to shout out in the way that they ask Jesus to teach to be, to te- him to teach them to pray. It, it must have been compelling, mustn't it? It must have been something really compelling about watching Jesus praying. There is something that drew them in. There is something that they wanted to be that. They wanted to enter into that. They wanted to enjoy what Jesus was enjoying. They wanted to be like Jesus. There was something remarkably compelling. That is one of those uh, unique factors, I would suggest, about the Christian faith. That on the one side, we have the compelling nature of the 
the aged widow who has lived a life of faith in Jesus and in the difficulties of final years still is expressing my trust and my faith is in Jesus. There is something remarkably compelling about that. At the end of life, to say, for all that has gone on, my faith is still in Jesus. If you've had the privilege of spending time with somebody like that, just chatting to them, and at the end, they're sharing with you perhaps something about what they've been praying about, there is something amazingly compelling about that. I reckon that at least... That was part of the drawing nature of why the disciples said, will you teach us to be that? Will you teach us to be able to inhabit that relationship in that way? And at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum, there is a sense in which the Christian faith is compelling in the most, um, in, in the most horrific and oppressed of situations. One of the marks that we see repeated throughout the world, throughout time, from the Roman Empire, through the Iron Curtain, through the oppression of China, through the oppression in the Middle East, in all of those different situations, there is something remarkably compelling about faith in the living God in the face of persecution. It's an excellent article if you, uh, if you want to uh, Google it in the Spectator magazine. It's by uh, John Allen Jr. He's a writer in the Spectator magazine. He writes an article about the persecution of the Christian faith throughout time and throughout the world. We talk about oppression. We talk about persecution, religious persecution. And most people's minds go to the Spanish Inquisition and all of that kind of thing. And we would say, absolutely, there are times when what claims to be the Christian faith has become a politicized, oppressive power. But the reality is, in the generation in which we live, 80% of religious persecution across the world is against Christian faith. That's, that's the statistics. And yet, out of the back end of that, <laughs> out of that very persecution, we have countless stories of people who have looked on at those who have been persecuted and said, there is something real in that. There is something true in that. There is something which is genuine, which is otherworldly, which is supernatural in its power, which is not just human observance and commitment. There is something of compelling power that we would live our faith in that way. And so we see people in those very desperate situations who are seeing other people come to faith in spite of the fact that there is persecution going on. From the widow to the persecuted, (laughs) there is something remarkably compelling. And so the actions of Jesus become the compelling instruction of Jesus. The way he lives becomes the model that his disciples then are compelled to want to live. I want to live like that. I want to have that relationship. There are many people in my life as a Christian, when I look on at their life as as believers in Jesus, I look on and I think, I'm living in a desert. (laughs) 
I'm living in a desert compared to them. I wish I was living their Christian life. I wish I had the relationship that they have with God because there is something so compelling about that. There is something so beautiful about that. So in one sense, Jesus is a model of compelling learning. In another sense, He is a model of progressive learning. Isn't it interesting (laughs) that it seems as though the reason that the disciples learned to pray was not because Jesus said, right, it's Tuesday of week two of your being a Jesus disciple. Now we're going to learn how to pray. They just watched. And as they learned, and as they were compelled, they grew in their faith. I want to encourage you, if you are early in your Christian faith, and you're finding prayer hard, you're with the disciples here. Because they were saying, we've been following you, now now will you teach us? Because we've been watching you, now help us, let us learn. Part of the Christian life, part of Christian faith is about progressive, step by step, little bits of learning along the way. What are they learning? They're learning to be a little bit more like Jesus every single day. They're not learning religious conventions. They're learning a relationship. They're learning how to inhabit this relationship with the living God. They're learning what it means to have a relationship which is expressed openly and freely. Whether it's verbal, whether it's in our thoughts, whether it's quietly, whether it's driving along in the car, whether it's walking down the street, whether it's that sp- those moments of profound grief or profound joy, it is those moments where we express in our inner being, all of this is happening in relationship with you, Father. And the disciples are seeing that. You know, we inhabit, we inhabit uh, situations to learn, don't we? We learn as we go along. Most of you won't remember life before texting. There was a life before texting. We did speak. We did talk to each other. But when we first learned to text, do you remember when you used to have to press A five times or whatever it was? And some of you were looking, saying, I don't know, what's that all about? When you used to have to do that, one of the things that you learned is, some of you get this, don't shout! Some people, they use caps all the time. And you kind of, you learn the convention, don't you? After you've sent 500 texts and people are beginning to think you're a strange person when you text, just stop shouting. It's kind of rude to use shouting capitals all the time. But isn't there a sense in which everything is like that? We, we learn as we go along. Our Christian life is about development, about nurturing, about building, about growing, about taking steps and feeling as if we've fallen down and then having to get back up and and be carried along and all of those kind of things. And it is exactly the same with our prayer life. Our prayer life is just that, 
we, we learn as we go along, we grow, we nurture. And there are some people who are absolute, they're Olympic athletes when it comes to prayer. And then there are others who struggle to run for the bus when it comes to prayer. But thank God that the church is made up of that great big mix of all of those different gifts and abilities and skills and and the things that God has granted to His people. And so Jesus becomes our instructor. He also becomes our doorway. Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples knew they knew if, we, if, we have the, if we're going to have this relationship with the living God, then it's going to have to be through Jesus. He's going to be the way who's going to instruct us, who's going to create the doorway for us to have that relationship. I wonder why the disciples asked John to pray, to teach them how to pray. I wonder whether in a, in a religious culture, which was dominated by the work of the priests, the intercessory work of the priests, it kind of, well, the priests will pray for us. And then John was nurturing. Do you know what? Relationship with God is about us having a righteous relationship with the God ourselves. Yes, the priests perform the work of, in priestly capacity, but it's us that have a relationship. Enliven yourselves to living a life in righteous relationship with God was John's message. And so there was that desire, and and John in one sense becomes a doorway to to a hope of a relationship, and then Jesus comes in and He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. I am the doorway for this relationship. Do you know one of the things that I love about the Christian faith, is it is all out there in one sense. If you're thinking about the Christian faith, you've got everything there in the Bible. It's there. I know that that we've got the whole of our lives to even begin to scratch the surface, but it's all out there. Going back to our first picture of discipleship. When you finally reach the stage of clear as a Scientologist, when when you've fully got on board and, and you've been fully committed to this and you've reached this high level, then you get to know all of the other stuff. You get all to know all of the other stuff about aliens in space and spacemen and Uh, They're all out there and they're ready to come back and all of this kind of thing. And uh, L. Ron Hubbard's science fiction writings from the 1950s, his pulp fiction writings, have now been preserved as religious writing because Scientology has been defined as a religion. And so all of that weekly guff where he was making his money just to live has been defined as religious writing. But you don't get to hear all of that stuff. You don't get to hear the hidden stuff. And Paul says, do you know, we've come to declare what was once a hidden mystery, and now it is all revealed. It is all revealed in the door, which is Jesus. That's it. That's everything. There is nothing hidden. 
and the Christian faith is not about, and our prayer life is not about our relationship with the church or, or this church or through that person or anything like that. It is about a model which Jesus says, this is what it's like to be in relationship with a Father in heaven. And the disciples say, will you teach us? Will you teach us to pray? Will you teach us that relationship? From a few, few words, we have the foundations of a life lived for Jesus. Prayer is a, an invitation to that relationship. It is not a religious convention. You know, when we think about the Lord's Prayer, how many of you, many of you will probably think about being knelt down in the school assembly and, and just religiously reciting the Lord's Prayer? Our prayer, I guess, is that over these next few weeks, it will become something so much more of that than that. An invitation to relationship with the Creator God.